The Grassroots Network summer podcast series has been generously underwritten by Turnkey Vacation Rentals. Turnkey Vacation Rentals is the first truly owner-centric vacation rental service now available in the Roaring Fork Valley. We handle all of your short-term rental property management needs, offering superior service and high returns. Turnkey's straightforward pricing and transparent business model make it easier for you to earn revenue from your rental. Proprietary technology provides a smoother, more efficient experience for both travelers and vacation rental owners. Trustworthy, local staff provides support around the clock with true full-service property management for homeowners and their guests. For more information on Turnkey Vacation Rentals, contact Mark Viola at mark.viola at turnkeyvr.com or call at 970-368-4288. Turnkey Vacation Rentals supports the Grassroots Network in your community. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to Encountering the Stranger. I am Rabbi Mendel Mintz. I'm the, uh, I like to call myself the luckiest rabbi in the world. I live in Aspen year-round, uh, and it is a great honor and privilege to be here. I moved here 16 years ago uh, with my wife. Six kids later, I'm still here, and it's all fine in this building. So welcome. This is almost two years old, this facility. Uh, some of you I know have been here at prior symposiums, so it's good to be in this space instead of running around hotel rooms and other locations. Uh, so on behalf of the Aspen Jewish Community Center and my staff, I want to welcome you all and appreciate you all being here at this uh, three-day unique symposium uh, and conversation together. About 15 years ago, soon after I moved to Aspen, I got a call I was living in a small apartment on Aspen Street, a few blocks down, uh, from a woman who said she deals with interfaith dialogue and religious uh, instruction and putting people together and wanted to talk. And I was a young rabbi. I wasn't sure what I'm getting into. But I figured it doesn't hurt to have a meeting. I called back and said, sure, let's get together. And we met. And that call was from Carolyn Mansovitz. And this is now our third symposium together here in Aspen. She's done this in other places. Uh, but in my 20 plus years of being a rabbi, I've never met someone more dedicated, more committed, and more passionate than bringing people, for bringing people together, for dialogue, for bringing different ideas, different paths, different approaches. Uh, approaches that have little in common that seemingly there's little to talk about, yet finding the common ground and building off that, where then we learn that we have so much more in common and so much more to discuss, debate, and think and talk about and really make the world a better place. So I want to say I'm honored to be not just Carolyn's friend, but a colleague and had a small part. This has been a work in progress for well over a year. And I just want to thank Carolyn for not just dedication, but passionate commitment uh, and all the emails we've all got for those who are presenting <laughs> over this week. I'm patiently and kindly responding. For those who didn't respond in time, next time respond sooner. Uh, and again, just thank you, Carolyn, and thank you again for all for being here. Thank you. So I'm going to save my remarks for the reception following 
this panel discussion. Um, there's a Hebrew song that I'm not going to sing for you, <laughs> but the lyrics go like this. Hine matov umanaim, shevet achim gam How good and precious it is for brethren to sit together. going to be videotaped this afternoon, and our moderator is Reverend Dr. Dieter Heinzel, and uh, viewers can access it at grassrootstv.org. So I will now turn the festivities over to Dr. Dieter Heinzel. Well, it truly is an honor and a privilege to be, to be here at this symposium and uh, to moderate this first panel which means I'm basically introducing the speakers and I am the timekeeper. <laughs> so uh, it's my understanding that uh, each and every one of you has roughly 15 minutes. And so after 10 minutes, I will hold up my hand and give you sort of an idea where, where you are. And uh, we will try to stay within uh, the allotted time so we can get to the reception in time. So our first, our first uh, or all of our panelists, Rabbi Amanda Mintz, Reverend Dr. Mike Nickerson, Professor Khalil Mohammed, and Rabbi Mark Sack. Uh, Rabbi Mintz will be our first presenter, and he is uh, obviously the rabbi here at the Jewish Community Center in Aspen. And uh, thank you so much for your hospitality having us. It really is a wonderful facility, and I know that uh, the last time Thank you very much, Dieter. I appreciate it. I hope to finish before you give me the five-minute warning. But uh, <laughs> So thanks again for the opportunity. Just to open with a brief story. In 1966, an 11-year-old black boy moved with his parents and his family to a white neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Sitting with his two brothers and his two sisters on the front step of his house, he waited to see how he would be greeted. They were not greeted, and no one said anything to him. Passers-by turned and looked, but no one said a word or even a glance of recognition. At the fearful stories he had heard about how whites had treated blacks all seemed to be coming true, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Years later, writing about this and about the days in his new home, he says, I knew we were not welcome here. I knew we were not, li we were not liked here. I knew we have no friends here. I knew we should have not moved here. As he was thinking th these thoughts, a white woman coming home from work passed by the other side of the road. She turned to the children, and with a broad smile, she said, welcome. Disappearing into her house, she emerged a few minutes later with drinks and jelly sandwiches. She crossed the street and brought them over to the children, making them feel at home. That moment, this young man later wrote, changed his life. It gave him a sense of belonging where there was none before, and it made him realize that a time when race relations were desperately lacking in this country, that a black family could, could be welcome and feel welcome in a, right, in a white area, and that relationships could be colorblind. 
Over the years, he learned to admire much about this woman and who he met, who lived just across the street from him. But it was that first spontaneous act of greeting him for him that became a definitive memory and a memory that he said he would never forget. It broke down a wall of separation that turned strangers into friends. This young man, Stephen Carter, eventually became a law professor at Yale University. And he wrote a book about what he learned that day, and he called the book, some of you probably read it, Civility. The name of the woman, he tells us, was Sarah Kestenbaum. And she died all too young, he writes, and he adds that it was no coincidence that this woman was a religious Jew. In the Jewish tradition, this black professor now continues, and in the book Civility, he writes, there's a concept called chesed, or doing acts of kindness, which is derived from the understanding that man is created in the image of God. Civility, he adds, itself may be seen as a part of chesed, a part of kindness. It does require, it mandates, and it asks us to treat our fellow citizens, including and perhaps more importantly, the stranger, even when it is difficult and hard to treat them with dignity, respect, and kindness. To this day, he adds, I can close my eyes and feel on my tongue the smooth, slick sweetness of those jelly sandwiches by Sarah Kestenbaum on a hot summer afternoon. It's when I discovered that a single act of genuine and unassuming civility can change a life and one's thinking forever. The concept of reaching out to a stranger, embracing a stranger, is as old as the Bible itself. In it, when Abraham and Sarah are looking for a spouse for their son Isaac, they tell their servant Eliezer to go search in Mesopotamia, and their servant Elazar shows up at the bank of the river when all the maidens and young women are coming, and he doesn't know how do you ask somebody to come back with him to marry my master's son. <laughs> and he says, God, dear God, and he prays, here's a test I will make. Many of you are familiar with the story. I'm gonna stand by the river, and the first woman that comes up to me and offers me a drink, but not just myself, but offers to also give water to all the camels in his entourage, that's a sign from above that that's worthy of being a future matriarch of Israel. And that's exactly what Rebecca did. She came over and said, can I give you a drink? And what about all your camels? What are they gonna drink? And he knew right away what, uh, who a spouse would be for his master's son, for Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac. We see throughout Judaism, encountering the stranger, there's dedicated laws and chapters in the code of Jewish law on how to do it, what to do, the Torah mentions, a resident stranger living amongst you, treating them appropriately. Remember that you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. We know the greatest king of Israel, King David. His great-great-grandparents were Naomi and Ruth, the book of Ruth, and the kindness that she had shown to her daughter-in-laws, and the kindness that Boaz, her later husband, showed her. And it was only through encountering and showing kindness to the stranger that a great king like David was eventually born and led the great nation of the Jewish people. So it's pretty clear and obvious when I had to speak about how Judaism views and sees the stranger, it was very, a very easy task uh, because our 
Bible and sages and commentaries are full and literally thousands upon thousands of stories of reaching out, encountering, and showing kindness to the stranger is a part and parcel of what Judaism is and being an honest, good, and ethical and moral Jew. Thank you very much. Well, you, you, you yield about nine minutes to, to your, to, to <laughs> your so. next presenter, which is great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Our, our second presenter is the Reverend Dr. Michael Nickerson, who is the pastor of the Aspen Community Church here in town. And we'll, without further ado, we'll turn it over to you, Mike. Okay. Um, I took a little different tact. I did sermon this morning, so I'm going to do academic paper today, and I hope it doesn't put you asleep, but what I'm taking off on is the way in which the book, Encountering Stranger, uh, seek to find the openness and hospitality of different religious traditions by looking in their own tradition, just as Rabbi Menz did. Um, but I'm going to take a little different tact. I, rather than looking at the theology, I'd like to look uh, anthropologically at the fact of how does our theology and our openness or exclusivism interact? And the thing I'm going, my, the title is Practical Mythology, True Theology, and Exclusivity. Now, to begin with, a few basic concepts. Um, religion, theology, mythology, uh, we talk all about those. In the broadest sense, religion is a belief system, uh, a thinking of ways in which we talk about God is the theology that evolves out of that belief system. And I think everyone has a theology, because everyone has a belief system which has a God, even if it's not Theo or God identified, something, some being, maybe a collection of beings, becomes the center of our lives. And when they become the center of our lives, that becomes our God. Well, how we come to all of these belief systems is through our mythology. Now, I know that mythology is a negative placed word in most of our reading and our thinking and leads us to think that it's about falseness, that it's stories that are not true and they lead us to untruths. But in its very basic understanding, mythologies are just a collection of stories. <coughs> stories that we've put together that create our meaning in our lives. It's, it's, you know, all of us have our mythologies. All of us generate our mythologies that are practical, the ones that we have personally, but they come out of our own personal stories and the stories we've received from our religious culture, the stories we receive from our secular culture, and stories we've received from other cultures that somehow fit with us. And out of the, that mythology, then, we generate a belief system. And if we understand it that way, it makes a big difference. Anthropologically, uh, Joseph Campbell talks a lot about mythologies, and he says, Myths are the clues to our spiritual potentialities of human life. That's what they're about. And 
as we share them, we create common belief systems. And so, while each of us have our practical mythology, we kind of are under a canopy of a certain belief system. And here we're talking about three large canopies of the traditional Abrahamic faiths. But there's enough in common that we feel comfortable under that canopy, whichever one it might be. Ultimately, the question becomes, to what extent is our belief system universal for everyone? And that's where I think the conflict between faith traditions, between belief systems, happens. The question is, is my theology true for everyone? That issue oftentimes carried heavily by what we would call a fundamentalist stance in our different traditions makes it impossible to have dialogue or trilogue as we're talking about it here. Because if you believe that you have all the truth, then everyone else who doesn't agree with you is in error. And if everybody else is in error, we then objectify them. And when we're able to objectify someone, we can do anything to them we want. And that is the issue that I think we constantly have to look at. You know, the um, issues of finding examples <clears throat> is easy. True theology that comes out of mythology that says, I am always right. And if I believe in the least bit that someone else might have a piece of theology that's better than mine, my whole system will fall apart. So I can't let that happen. Supersessionism comes from that basic stance. And if we think about it, that stance is what causes conflicts. Not only between the large world religion traditions, but within them. I mean, being a historian, I understand Christianity has had all sorts of times when it hasn't been non-Christians, it's been other Christians who have the wrong theology. I mean, that was a major factor in the Hundred Years' War. And one of the examples that is hardly ever given is the one of uh, the city-state of Geneva during the time of Calvin. Uh, it was a reformed Protestant theocracy. And in that theocracy, you must understand God from a Calvinist pers perspective. And if you didn't, you were subject to persecution. And whenever there's a state-sponsored religion, whenever there is a theocracy that believes it's the true religion, theocracies always kill their citizens. Because anybody who doesn't agree with me is wrong. Anybody who is wrong is less than me. I ultimately can objectify them and actually it's an interesting way that it comes about but people then can be killed and we think we're ethical. We're doing God's work. Now in Geneva uh, of course they burned Roman Catholics at the stake 
But the ones that often get forgotten are the Anabaptists. Now, they were particularly persecuted because they wouldn't give allegiance to the state. And because they didn't give allegiance to the state, they were persecuted too, but they didn't get the normal heretics punishment of burning at the stake. They were drowned to make a mockery of their understanding of baptism. Now, theocracies have happened throughout the modern era. They've led, of course, as we look at the book a lot, to the Holocaust. They led to the Inquisition much earlier. They led to the Armenian genocide, to the Rwandan genocide. Every time there's a genocide, the first step is to show how your God is right and the other people are wrong and as wrong as they are, it's right to kill them. Now, it's an interesting thing that you can find theocracies uh, throughout history. Um, I, I can point out lots of Christian ones. I am relatively sure, although I'm not uh, an expert on it, that there are Islamic theocracies that have, have persecuted persons who are Islamic but have different Islamic views. Uh, I haven't found in the modern era any Jewish ones because, of course, there hasn't been any Jewish state to create a theocracy, at least not until the creation of Israel. Israel's not a theocracy right now, but there are people within Israel who envision a greater Israel in their imagination, which would be a theocracy, and we have to assume that if there was that theocracy, it would do the same thing all other theocracies have done. Taking a practical mythology, creating a true mythology, true, true theology, and excluding everyone who does not have that view. Um, that's the issue. That's the problem. Um, I know that each of our uh, faith traditions have ways in which we can talk about how wonderful we're supposed to deal with other people, with the stranger. But until we recognize that our own theology is ours, made up of our practical mythology, we can never get any further. But when we understand that we choose the narratives that create our theology, we choose those narratives, then it's our choice. And if it's our choice, possibly we can understand that others make choices. And if they haven't had our experiences, those choices will be different. What I'm really talking about here is, is a value that all three Abrahamic traditions have, which is humility. You have to begin by saying, yeah, this is what I believe. But I understand that it might not encompass everything. And in fact, it doesn't. Because the theology that we usually use is trying to define God. You know, that's what we do. Ever and ever better definitions of God which is impossible. God's infinite. And so in thinking about that, how, how do we not look at our theology as the only one? And I think the words do sometimes get in the way. And I would suggest that there are a way out 
first of all, you've got to be humble, knowing that yours isn't the true one. Yours is the one that works for you. Second, though, is maybe we shouldn't use as many words. Maybe we shouldn't be so theologically oriented by definition. Maybe if we talk more about how did you make the choices to choose your mythology? That might be a much more interesting conversation. And if we did that, and I would like you to, I, I have, I didn't do a handout like one of those ones, and I'm missing all of my papers here. I messed all up, because I haven't been following them at all. Shame, shame. I've got some questions for you, and I can't find them. Anyway, how did you come to your mythology? How did you choose it? What effect has it had on your understanding of the world and God? And how has it affected your worldview? Those are the three questions that I'd like you to write down sometime during this symposium. Because I think there are a way in which we can begin to understand who we are, which is always essential when you're ever trying to do any trial. Now there's another element I think here, and that is we have, I get a few, can I have a few of his minutes here? <laughs> the other element is that um, there's actually two things. Mysticism. All three of our faith traditions have mystics who, when you read them, sound more like each other than they do of their own traditions. About the oneness of God, and they're very reticent talk about definitions. And quite frankly, um, I have to say this, I find the uh, Jewish and Islamic reticence to talk about defining God or naming God much preferable to the Christian attempts of always defining down to the last letter who God is. And arguing. And then arguing about it, right. <laughs> uh, we need to have space. We need to have openness. And how do you create that? Well, I would suggest one of the ways we create it is to follow what the mystics do. They talk about their experiences, but they don't define them. They talk about them as a way of encouraging others to find their space, to find their God, and then they can talk with one another. But not only talk. I think one of the real ways that we share experiences rather than definitions, which I think is the way to true interaction among the <clears> faiths, <throat> one of the ways we do that is through art. Maybe our theological writing should be more poetic than prose. Maybe we really should look at the sculptures and painting and music as ways to interact, as ways to share what we experience in our faith tradition and how that might communicate to others who have a different past, a different experience, a different mythology, a different belief system, and yet are seeking communications with one another. You know, I've always thought that art is a wonderful form of sharing experience. 
And I've always had real problems with um, when anybody writes about a symphony or a, cult or a sculpture or a painting telling you in words what it's about. <laughs> well, you know, if the artist could have used words, they wouldn't have spent all that time composing or writing or creating the art. But maybe if we share more of our art with each other, the traditions will begin to have some common ground. And that common ground can enhance our common theology and mythologies. There's lots of other things I had here, but I'm going to end up here because Dietrich is telling me that it's time. Yes. Hold it. No, I, I got one more quote. I'm not quite ending. I'm going to take Rabbi Mendel's few minutes here. <laughs> Maybe the most helpful and endearing way of respecting and appreciating one another's religious traditions goes back to something Joseph Campbell said. He said, read myths. They teach you that you can turn inward and you begin to get the message of the symbols. Read other people's myths, not those of your own religion, because you tend to interpret your own religion in terms of facts. But if you read the other ones, you begin to get the message. Myth helps you put your mind in touch with the experience of being alive. It tells you what that experience is. Now if that makes sense to you, being in a trialogue that is not, it's just not a nice gesture or even a, an attempt for understanding. It's something more. Learning other people's stories brings life to us, to our own activities. It becomes central to our learning and to our lives. All right. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Uh, our third presenter this afternoon is uh, Professor Khalil Mohammed, who teaches at San Diego State University. And uh, his title is When Certainty is Immaterial. Professor Mohammed. Thank you. Next time I'm going to go first, because after listening to these two, it's difficult to follow. <laughs> to make a segue and to show you why I just said what I said, there is a Muslim tradition that I am convinced comes from the Midrash, the Jewish Midrash. It says whenever a group of people get together to learn about God or God's works, God's mercy descends upon and the angels come amongst them. And God reckons the people for those minutes that they're learning as if though they are in the divine presence. Neither one of us, or none of us, I think, saw each other's writings before. And then the rabbi spoke, and then you spoke, and then as I'm listening, I said, hey, I must have looked at his stuff also. <laughs> I really looked at yours. Nonetheless, <laughs> <laughs> with that, I'll go on. Now, scholars, academic scholars, speak of Abrahamic religions promoting what you call conflict dualism. Conflict dualism 
basically means there is good and evil. The good and the bad, and the bad is always the other. The two are opposed to each other. And in the extremist scenario, good must prevail and evil must be conquered. Now, you think this all sounds good. Except that defining evil is not as easy as we think. For often, we find that a person being deemed as evil, his actions perceived as evil, is more a matter of pronouncement and judgment that serves the interest of the person making such a judgment rather than a statement of objective analysis. We find a lot of this in today's world. You see, as both a rabbi and a reverend told you, many of the followers, well, at least you hinted that, let me not put words in your mouth. <laughs> Forgive me, Father. <laughs> <laughs> Many of the followers of the various scriptures are convinced that only their interpretation of that scripture is true. The followers of other religions are obviously wrong in this worldview. And as for co-religionists that happen to disagree, they are either self-hating Jews, fallen Christians, or infidels, or whatever. Or worse yet, as I have been called, a pawn of Satan. But there's another thing that we find a lot of in today's world as well, and it is what gives me hope. We have moved on from the certainty that particularism, particularism promotes, or exclusivism. We have even moved on from tolerance. For a while, that sounds like such a good term. It carries a lot of judgmentalism in it. Think about it. I'm tolerating you because I know deep down inside you're bloody wrong. <laughs> but you know I'm good. Today we hear a lot of pluralism. Basically that everyone has a right to his or her path. And that there is no need to judge for we do not have that capacity. I just came back from a conference in San Francisco. And I listened to my colleague, I like to name drop by the way. I listened to my colleague Jacob Wright a Shomer Shabbat Jew from Emory University. See, I didn't, when I wrote this, I did not realize you would be speaking before me. <laughs> so I had to insist on what Jacob was, on Jacob's identity as a Shomer Shabbat Jew. He raised some eyebrows when he advocated a theory that is quite common among academics, that some of the scriptural stories are simply myths. <laughs> myths, you see, are stories that, when we think about it as a fairy tale or not, that's a wrong way of looking at it. A myth is that which is beyond falsification. I've heard it so many times. It becomes that upon which you make your values. You have been told the myths <coughs> so many times you accept them. How did our forebears accept them? We are not sure. We are too glued to reading written texts today instead of the oral tradition. And when you read something, you separate yourself and you analyze it. Whereas when you're hearing something, you're forced to internalize. Try to see how the speaker is presenting it to you. 
Now I speak as a Muslim. And they say many Muslims would be angry with Jacob for saying that they think God speaks the truth only and therefore the stories as reported in the Quran or Bible have to be exactly as told. And I'm happy that the Muslims are upset with Jacob because he's a Jew. They can go take their eyebrows out on him, but me, you know, I gotta <laughs> protect myself somewhat. The problem is with my co-religionists who take this literal view of scripture that again God says so it has to be so and if God said that Adam did so and so then it had to be exactly it was a dude called Adam etc except that in the Quran we are told that when Muhammad repeats some of the stories of the Bible the people say to him these are myths of old for those of you who speak Arabic, Asatirul Awaleen. Muhammad does not correct the people. That is, of course, a topic that can be explored elsewhere. What we know, regardless of what position we want to take, is that the shared stories are told differently in the various traditions. A Jewish person reads Isaiah differently from a Christian person. Think about it. How a Muslim reads Isaiah is based only on what he or she hears from the tradition because the verses of Isaiah are not replicated in the Quran. Provide the stories, however, are retold. The Quran, you have been told, or some of you know already, has references to the biblical narratives. But there are subtle differences, we think. This is because, as researchers have shown, the scriptures provide different messages of value and ethics to different peoples for different times. The Bible becomes, the Hebrew Bible becomes meaningful to a Jewish community that is suffering in exile, etc. And so the story of David contains several messages. David does some horrific deeds, but he's still king of Israel. He is father of the Messiah. God still loves him. God loves you as long as you turn. The Muslims find Moses in the Quran mentioned more than Muhammad because a certain message is being stressed. As to did these things happen? The variances of the story, which one is telling the truth? When we ask those questions, as Jacob Neusner says, we commit violence against our tradition. Those stories are told to teach us a certain value. I'll digress a bit here and tell you. In the Quran, David's sin with Bathsheba is not mentioned. The Quran presupposes you know it. But the story of David is being told to a people unlike the Hebrews. The Hebrews had known glory and conquest and were suffering. The Arabs of Muhammad's time had never known glory. David has to be presented in the Quran, therefore, as a paragon. And if you're making somebody an exemplar to a people who have never known glory, you do not recount the sins or the shortcomings of that exemplar. 
Muhammad's contemporaries most likely knew this because the Quran tells them about the mortality of the prophets and that when they need to establish that mortality to go ask the people of the Jewish scriptures. Centuries later, Muslims are not going to the Jews and they're not exchanging information. So the Muslims read the story differently, having no idea of what is happening. And so when they hear Rabbi Mark Sack telling us about the you talk about this sometimes, right? <laughs> he prefers to talk about Rahab, not about Bathsheba, but that's something else. <laughs> when the Muslims hear these stories of the Bible, then without knowing the context, they say, oh, that document is corrupt. Look at how those Jews denigrate a prophet of God or a king of God, etc. What is not beyond us, therefore, is that we learn from the stories and how those stories can be applied to our society today. When we know each other, it is easy to be civil and to be nice to each other. I walk in, I greet the rabbi, I greet Carol. Even though I know she's not very patient with me and she would like to tell me a thing or two for not responding to her email. <laughs> but we're civil to each other. Our value must be shown, however, in how we deal with those we don't know. And that is why, as I listen to the rabbi talk about Rebecca, <laughs> she doesn't know. Well, yes, there is. She doesn't. But he's standing there, she doesn't know, she comes and what does she do? She offers him the, kind, the kindness of actions. Our value, therefore, must be shown in how we deal, as I said, with those we don't know. Abraham greeted his guests. In my tradition, in the Quran, it says, he greeted them with peace, salam, and shalom, and the fatted calf. The Bible tells the story in a summary fashion. And we never ask if Abraham could be certain that they were from the Lord. But he greets them with warmth and honor, bowing before them. If we read scriptures then to tease out these messages, to find out how we interact with the stranger, rather than to infer from those scriptures rightness about our personal theology, our personal path, when we do the latter, I think we commit violence against Christ. I come from a little country called Guyana in South America. Many people see us as backward and primitive, and probably we are in some ways. But I'm proud of being Guyanese because my dad sent me to church. My dad was an imam, but he insisted that I go to church school, my first babysitter. Don't feel too good. She was from the Church of Scotland. <laughs> I went to the Hindu homes. There were no Jews that we know of in Guyana except that our first woman leader was Jewish, but she was one of those communist Jews. She didn't care about the religious tenets. What I'm trying to tell you is that in my little country, we took from each other's traditions without saying that's Christian or this is Hindu or whatsoever. We saw the values that we could glean from this. And you wonder why then we live 
how can we learn from each other? Why is there so much evil? We look in our traditions, and I can look in your traditions as well and see good, because I take from those, I must admit, as if they are mine too. There's a midrash. I'm not taking away your job, man, just stay quiet. There's a midrash that says when the Egyptians were destroyed <coughs> after pursuing Moses, the angels were singing songs of praise. And God is a bit upset. And God says, you're singing songs of praise when I had to destroy that which I created with my own hands. This, when you think of the other, even if you have feelings of hatred towards them, forces you to bring out that good. Well, my name is Muhammad, and I'm amongst you post 9-11, and you're not yelling and screaming at me. So I guess that's a good enough time to end before you do start screaming. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Khalil. Our final presenter this afternoon is uh, Rabbi uh, Mark Zak. He is uh, the rabbi at uh, Temple Judea in Fort Myers in Florida. And uh, his talk is entitled Humility in Vitanut. In Vitanut. All right. The prerequisite for reconciling the dignity of the other. Mark. And I'm going to teach him with Russians. Uh, some of you have it. If you did not receive the Midrash, I'll have here. Uh, what is it? Did anybody have that one of these? Oh, this is a Babylonian yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. 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 Picking up on something uh, Reverend Nickerson said in his presentation. Contrary to what parades as piety in today's religious marketplace, in which so many are completely sure of the absolute truth of their tradition and are ready to impose that so called truth on others. I believe there is no faith without humility. There is no faith without acknowledging the incompleteness of our understanding of God and what God wants of us. I also believe that humility and other elements of faith that I will mention later are prerequisites for constructively engaging with those who are different from us, humility is certainly fundamental to Judaism. Aviva Zornberg, in her commentary, <coughs> excuse me, in her commentary on Exodus 27, 20 to 
to 3010, what we in the Jewish community call Parshat Tetzaveh, cites a midrash about a tension in God's personality. Before I present this midrash which you have in front of you, let me tell you that that passage of Exodus is unique in the last four books of the Torah. Through idiosyncratic use of language, Moses' name is not mentioned once. God speaks to Moses several times. God commands Moses to dress and to anoint his brother Aaron as high priest, but the name Moses never appears. So here's the Midrash, and you have it in front of you. Wherever you find the power, Kivurah, of God, there you find his humility, Invitanut. This principle is written in the Torah, in the prophets, and in the writings. In the Torah, it is written, for the Lord your God is the supreme God and the supreme Lord, which is followed by, he does justice to the orphan and the widow. This is repeated in the prophets. So says the exalted one, the sublime one who lives eternally, which is followed by, yet with the contrite and lowly in spirit. And again in the writings, extol him who rides the clouds, the Lord is his name, which is followed by the father of the orphans, the champion of the widows. The Midrash is making at least these two points. One expects God to be powerful. One does not expect God to be humble. But the Midrash claims humility is equally part of God's nature. In fact, there's a dynamic tension between these two traits. Where you find one, you also find the other. By pointing out that this understanding of God is cited in all three sections of the Hebrew Bible, the Midrash is saying that this dual characteristic of God is broadly understood and accepted. Now Zornberg brings this Midrash to make the further point that God expects Moses to display these traits of power and humility as well, especially the humility. God demands that Moses set aside his own desire for the priesthood and give that role to his brother. But the Hebrew word hum for humble, anav, while highlighted in the Midrash, is not found in the Exodus passage on which Zornberg makes her comment. The only place in Torah where Moses is actually called humble is a narrative in the book of Numbers, where Moses, here, Moses' siblings, Aaron and Miriam, are complaining about how much power their brother has. Interestingly, that follows almost immediately after Moses willingly shares his prophetic power with 70 elders in order to better manage the affairs of the Israelite camp. It's in the context of those stories that the Torah comments 
that Moses was the most humble of men. What is humility? What is this trait that Chavati Rosh Samuelson describes as an overarching value of rabbinic Judaism? This quality that is so out of sync with modern culture and I dare say contemporary religious values. Now Zornberg uses the words cooperation, compliance, and forbearance to define humility. And Webster's <coughs> defines forbearance as patience and self-control. I would go much further. In the Midrash, God is not being patient or compliant with the orphan and the widow. God seems to be saying that the presence of the orphan and the widow reflect a limitation of his own power. There is suffering in the world that God cannot prevent. I submit that humility is the acknowledgement of limitation. The Midrash says, wherever you find God's power, there you find God's acknowledgement of the limitation of his power. And that acknowledgement of limitation. You know, I give sermons, and that happens all the time. <laughs> it's you. Maybe it is. <laughs> That acknowledgement of limitation is what God wants of Moses and what God wants of us. We cannot understand it all. We do not know exactly what God is or what God wants of us. Wherever you find the power of God, there you find his humility. The dynamic tension between these two aspects of God and what God wants of his servants continues in later Jewish thought. Joseph B. Soloveitchik, in The Lonely Man of Faith, presents this tension of power and humility in his model of two Adams. The Adam of Genesis 1, and the Adam of Genesis chapter 2. Adam 1 wants to control the world around him. Adam 2 responds to the world with questions. I'm quoting here. He asks, who is he who trails me steadily, uninvited and unwanted, like an everlasting shadow, and vanishes into the recesses of transcendence the very instant I turn around to confront this numinous, awesome, and mysterious heat. Soloveitchik's Adam II acknowledges that God is ultimately unknowable, but he asks his questions nonetheless. This is a second prerequisite of faith, for there is no faith without questioning. There's no faith without asking, how can I fulfill God's will? What does God want of me? 
This questioning is also critical for our encounter with the other. For such a meeting is an opportunity to learn, to learn more about God and God's will. My commitment to Judaism does not preclude me from appreciating the wisdom and the depth of another tradition. Faith demands of me that I be open to finding new insight from the words and the experience of the other, even evaluating and reinterpreting my understanding of Judaism in light of what I learned. This is more than tolerance. Khalil, I think it was you who talked about tolerance, and you stole it from my paper. <laughs> <laughs> well, somehow, <laughs> he got a sneak preview. I use a smaller font. <laughs> tolerance is thinking, I'll be nice to you and even sit next to you, even though I think you're completely wrong in what you think and what you believe. Tolerance is the kind of listening we do when we're planning our response in our heads before we've heard everything the other has to say. Faith is different from that. It is genuine openness and curiosity about the world of the other. There's yet one more component to the life of faith that is germane to our discussion. In the Midrash Zornberg cites, God's humility motivates him to do something. God does justice to the orphan and the widow. He is with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. God feels a responsibility to relieve their suffering. In his pamphlet, The Way of Man, Martin Buber shares this Hasidic tale. Rabbi Chaim of Zanz had married his son to the daughter of Rabbi Eliezer. The day after the wedding, he visited the father of the bride and said, now that we're related, I feel close to you and can tell you what's eating at my heart. Look, my hair and beard have grown white and I have not yet atoned. Oh, my friend, replied Rabbi Eliezer, you're thinking only of yourself. How about forgetting yourself and thinking about the world? In Jewish tradition, faith pushes us outward. It pushes us to engage the world with our eyes wide open and to ask what needs fixing. There was a wonderful essay in the New York Times back in March entitled, God is a Question, Not an Answer. Now, doubt and humility are not exactly the same, but they're in the same family. They both grow out of an acknowledgement of incompleteness, of knowledge of God and God's will. Here's an excerpt from that article. Rather than seeking the security of an answer, perhaps we should collectively celebrate the uncertainty of the question. This is not to say we should cease attempts to convince others of our views. Far from it. We should try to unsettle others as we remain open to being unsettled ourselves. In a spirit of tolerance, I agree with, I disagree with the author's use of that word. In a spirit of tolerance and intellectual humility, which is see ourselves as partners in a continuing conversation, addressing an enduring question. What is that enduring question? 
I once had a mentor who was a Catholic priest who told me that every morning he asked what God wanted of him that day. For me, that's the question. And my answer to that question is to approach the world, including the other, with openness of mind and openness of heart. say we're, we're off to a, to a wonderful start. Uh, there are already some themes emerging from all four presentations that we have heard. And I hope that you all will take the opportunity to talk amongst yourselves a little bit, to go downstairs for the gallery opening. Carolyn will start talking to us roughly about six o'clock. So we have about half an hour to mingle, uh, to talk to the presenters, uh, and to enjoy the facility. So, uh, I invite you to all follow us upstairs. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. The Grassroots Network Summer Podcast Series has been generously underwritten by Turnkey Vacation Rentals. Turnkey Vacation Rentals is the first truly owner-centric vacation rental service now available in the Roaring Fork Valley. We handle all of your short-term rental property management needs, offering superior service and high returns. Turnkey's straightforward pricing and transparent business model make it easier for you to earn revenue from your rental. Proprietary technology provides a smoother, more efficient experience for both travelers and vacation rental owners. Trustworthy, local staff provides support around the clock with true full-service property management for homeowners and their guests. For more information on Turnkey Vacation Rentals, contact Mark Viola at Mark dot v-i-o-l-a at turnkeyvr.com or call at 970-368-4288. Turnkey Vacation Rentals supports the grassroots network in your community.